gonna turn yourself in for three hots and a cot because you want your freedom? I've uh, been undergoing regular therapy with Dr. Capra. He agrees that I've purged my antisocial impulses. If I can convince the authorities of that, they'll have little recourse but to grant my formal release. Hmm. So, Charles, that soundbite was from the, like, the opening gambit of the episode that, you know, happens right before the theme song. And I think I really like the sort of comedic beat where Maurice is just like, huh. And then it goes a hard cut into the opening title theme song. To me, that feels like more of a modern comedic beat. Like, I don't, I can't think of uh, TV shows that were doing that back in the day. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. That was something that I did not catch. But speaking on that, one of the peculiar things that I noticed this episode is that it utilized scenes from previous episodes. Yeah, the flashbacks. We never see that. I, um, when I was watching it, I was really enjoying it. I was like, oh, this is kind of fresh. Like, I haven't seen this in Northern Exposure. But pretty quickly, I was also like, I was turned off because it just, uh, it didn't feel very Northern Exposure. It almost felt kind of cheap and easy. Like, I do really, I'm really happy that they are bringing back this Cal Ingram character. Uh, And he has such a deep lore now. He's been in multiple episodes, so much so that they have to go and do the flashbacks to explain his backstory. Um, But maybe that's also sort of Northern Exposure showing its age, is that it's been going on so long that if we want to bring Cal back into Sicily, then we have to do a bunch of exposition dump. It did feel unlike other episodes of Northern Exposure. Like, I feel like other episodes would have handled it differently in that they wouldn't have had those flashbacks. It almost felt very um, clip show for a moment. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. I saw it, I registered it in my head, and I was thinking, you know what? We're so close to the end. It doesn't even matter. (laughs) Do what you want. (laughs) That is kind of how I've been approaching these last few episodes. I didn't even realize it, but like last episode, uh, Ursa Minor, I think we remarked that it was a, a bit of sort of a mediocre episode. And I would also call today's episode, um, it's not, it's nothing to really write home about. It's not, hmm. Well, I don't know. I was going to say it doesn't feel like the train has completely gone off the track, but there, there, it's, there's like semblances of Northern exposure in here, but it's also kind of like, a lot of the magic is gone, you know? Yeah, I would agree. I think that this episode is, uh, it's got the classic characters. We got Barbara Szymanski. We have Cal Ingraham, along with some new ones like the kids, uh, multiple kids. Yeah. So many kids. <laughs> so many kids. So many kids that it's like, it's questionable because you never see that many kids at the brick. And now you guys are trying to fool me into being like, <laughs> kids are hanging they've out always the been there. Yeah, there's a scene where they're, uh, the kids are sitting at one of the booths. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we never see that on Northern Exposure. Oh, by the way, like, okay, hang on. I'm already on a tangent, so I'm going to go on a side tangent, a sidebar right here, and then get back into the tangent. (laughs) But when I saw those kids, all I can think about is like, that's how I see like 20-year-olds now. (laughs) 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 Little infants. Yeah. So we got all of these characters returning, but it honestly didn't really feel like Northern Exposure to me. It felt... Like it was kind of a pain by the numbers thing that was trying to mimic its dialogue. And it, sometimes it's actually really great. Um, Learn some new words this episode. But 
uh, as a whole, I don't think I'm a giant fan of this one. Yeah. But hang on, hang on, hang on. Before we even talk about our thoughts about this episode, what are we even talking about here, Lee? Yes, we're talking about the 1990s CBS TV series Northern Exposure, now available to stream on Amazon Prime for uh, United States customers, I suppose, but uh, hopefully expanding to more territory soon. Finally available for streaming for the first time. And uh, we are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Lee. I'm a big fan of the series. One of my favorite shows of all time. I uh, believe I started watching this show back in high school uh, when it was already, what, uh, 15, 20 years old. And now, um, Charles, you're my co-host here. You're watching every episode for the first time. But this is the penultimate episode of Northern Exposure. You've seen almost all of the episodes. You got one more left. So you're a bit of a Northern Exposure scholar yourself, but I always appreciate hearing your your fresh take on each episode. And to be honest, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen season six. So a lot of this episode I do not remember, but let me go ahead and tell you that this episode is called Let's Dance. It's uh, the 22nd episode in season six, one episode left. And uh, it was directed by Michael Vittis, who has worked a few times on this show before. He did Might Makes Right, which was coincidentally the first episode where we see Cal Ingram. So some of those flashbacks, the sort of clip show flashbacks, were taken from that episode. Um, he also directed Una Volta in L'Inverno, Sons of the Tundra, uh, The Quest, which is a big uh, fan favorite. That's the episode that Joel leaves, uh, Sicily leaves the show. and. Uh, this is the last episode that he directs, and it was written by Sam Egan, who started writing in this season, and he he wrote the last episode that we watched, Charles um, Ursa Minor, among others. Uh, the air date was July 19th, 1995. Of course, it was a Wednesday, and um, we kind of mentioned this at the end of our last podcast, but this episode, Let's Dance, was the lowest-rated episode of the entire series, looking at the uh, Nielsen ratings. What? what? Lowest, uh, lowest, uh, <laughs> lowest uh, viewership numbers that I guess the, the Nielsen rating could report. Um, does It does shoot back up for the, the finale, of course, because everyone wants to, or, you know, some people want to watch the, uh, the final episodes, see how they're going to close it out. Yeah, I mean, we can quickly talk about the opening gambit. We, we already talked about that soundbite, but as we mentioned before, Cal Ingram... Uh, returns to the series. Uh, if you're a little foggy on this character, he was introduced as this violinist that Maurice hires. Uh, he's this virtuoso musician. Maurice hires him to appraise a um, very valuable violin, a Guarneri del Gesù violin. They reference that in this episode. And um, he's come back uh, multiple times. I kind of want to say this is maybe his fourth appearance. Does that sound right, Charles? Yeah, he has appeared so much. I, I was really surprised that he showed up again at the penultimate episode. I remember that he comes back for like a second episode. And then I was surprised. I want to say I was surprised because he comes again for a third. And then this fourth time, I, I was just not even expecting it. Um, if I am getting that right, you know, I, I was not expecting this many appearances of Cal. But I think every time he's been in an episode, we've always enjoyed his plot lines. If I'm not mistaken, his story in the episode more or less. Um, he was driven mad by his love for the Guarneri del Jesu violin. I think he attempted to kill Maurice in various ways to get the violin. He was, um, 
put into a, an asylum and uh, he subsequently broke out of that asylum in future episodes. And he's since been, I guess, living in the wilderness and visiting Sicily. And we learn in this opening scene that he has been, um, he has been, I guess, secretly seeing Dr. Capra for psychiatric or, or therapy sessions, I guess. Yeah, that's right. He's been seeing Phil Capra in order to get a little bit of his emotions and stability right here. And it's due to those little sessions that Cal believes that, well, in order to get his freedom, he needs to go back into the, I almost called it the penitentiary, but it, it's a it's a mental hospital, right? Mental like, what is hospital. the correct word for it? I called it an asylum. Um, they referred to it, I think, as Ellisburg a lot in this episode. I think that's the name of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's a mental hospital. I think you're right. But the idea being is he needs to turn himself in because he's been on the lam. And he, if he can um, prove that he has been rehabilitated, you know, thanks to Dr. Phil Capra's um, psychiatry, you know, uh, therapy or whatever, um, then they'll have to let him free. Yeah, I'm not a fan of returning back to him after his conclusion of his last appearance, though. If we remember, that's the one where Maurice has the, yeah, second thoughts about turning in Cal. And he says to Officer Szymanski that, no, he doesn't know where he is. He's fled. And it, it marked a really good resolution between the two characters because Maurice was the character who initially introduced Cal. So now it comes to him to free him. So it goes back, you know, in a circle. But now coming back to this, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if this is it. I do like it, but I think it's more for Maurice now that I'm realizing it. It's not really uh, the episode doesn't really serve Cal. It's just um, a way of using Cal to further, I guess, a storyline or a, a romantic storyline between Maurice and Barbara. But I do like it for that reason, because it's in a later scene where Maurice is talking with Dr. Capra, but he says this has opened up a whole can of worms now because he doesn't want Barbara to think that he's doing this just so that she would fall in love with him again. You know, it's like, of course, he is glad to see that Cal is back and willing to, you know, reenter society and trying his best uh, to take the right steps. But if Maurice is to um, to turn him in, then he's worried about what Barbara will think of that. Because of all the things you just said, uh, that was a very powerful moment in that episode you're referencing, Charles, um, both with Maurice and with Cal, where Maurice decides to, I guess, fall on the sword. It's just such an interesting um, confrontation because... Barbara knows that Maurice is lying and like gives him an opportunity to, you know, admit it's like, no, I've got, I'm, I've been hiding Cal, but Maurice sticks to his guns knowing that Barbara knows that he's protecting a criminal, you know? I can get what you're saying right here. Like it's another way to reignite the relationship between Maurice and Barbara Szymanski. And this was the wedge that was between them. So in order to get that coming again, you got to confront that. Like, I don't know. Does it have to involve Cal though? Like, couldn't they have found another roundabout way to resolve this without needing Cal? I think that it makes a very interesting and tricky dilemma for Maurice in that scene where he's bringing it up to uh, Phil Capra. I guess we'll get to it when we get to the next scene. I like the position he's put in, in that scene. I don't think that that ever really, uh, 
matriculates or if that's the word to say, like, I don't think that evolves into anything down the storyline. And another issue is that, yeah, I mean, Cal's here mostly just to uh, be sort of a linchpin in uh, the relationship between Szymanski and Maurice. He's not really here for any of his own sort of character reasons. I mean, I guess he's going to finally be rehabilitated, but I don't know. I actually have a thought on that too. As the episode continues, you know, they're getting closer and closer to Ellisburg, I think it's called. Um, they're getting closer and closer to their destination and they're going to turn uh, Cal in to the authorities. Cal says maybe in one scene, maybe in two scenes where he's like, you know, I've been thinking about it. Maybe when I get free, I could, um, I could even like start up a, an ensemble, you know, like a four piece or something, a quartet. And, uh, maybe we could go touring again, you know? So it's, it's like he has this addiction to music. Maybe, um, I say that because Phil earlier in the episode says, uh, remember Cal, there are more languages than just music as if to say that maybe music has been a crutch or a drug for Cal something that might not help in his uh, therapy. And it seems like in this episode that Cal is insinuating that even though he's going to uh, get out of the mental hospital, maybe he's going to fall back on his old ways and become addicted to this idea of the Guarneri or addicted to this music. It's not very fleshed out there because that doesn't happen, right? He does. I know we're jumping all around in this plot, but it just it just occurred to me that I don't even know what's going on with Cal in this episode. Yeah, I think so too. I think that there's a lot of little threads right here and they finally arrived at one at the end that I think I can piece together with the okay. with the themes of the other episode. But altogether, I feel like it's what the youngins call like uh, cooking too much. <laughs> too many cooks or or we let him cook? No, yeah, that one. <laughs> but that's, that's usually like, wait, let him cook. Something good's going to happen. But I think we no. But I think it could be negative, right? It's like, oh, who let him cook? Who let him cook? Who let this guy? Cook? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sam Egan, who put you in the kitchen? Uh, well, hang on. Is Sam Egan the director or is he the writer? He's the writer. Okay, because I do think that the director was cooking, <laughs> like in a good way or a bad way. Good way. Good way. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. I yeah. actually think he made a lot of stylistic choices that yes. I'm a big fan of. Just like personally, I always like those symbols. Well, maybe let's go. Let's try to go chronologically. I know I've my. The thoughts are exploding in my head and I'm thinking about all these different scenes in the episode. Maybe if we tackle it in order uh, through, let's talk about this plot line with Cal. Uh, maybe that'll shed some light and we can touch on uh, some of our favorite moments in this plot line. So we already outlined the opening scene, the hilarious hard cut to the opening title theme song. Yeah, that felt, I don't know if they knew that that was going to be funny or uh, if they planned it for it to be funny. But it feels very modern. You know, it feels like something that you would see in a comedy show today with a hard cut like that. Anyway, the next scene with uh, Cal would be Maurice is bringing Cal to Capra's office at night. And Maurice is worried about Cal. Of course, he protected Cal. You know, I guess the last time we saw Cal maybe or whenever Barbara was searching for Cal. So this is what it is. The last time we saw Cal... Didn't he like perform in that like indoor uh, playground, you know, that, that auditorium, didn't he have like a performance yeah. and Ed was like, Ed was covering for Cal too in that episode. I don't remember if that's the same episode with Maurice, but it's likely, uh, they're all bleeding together. We know that Maurice cares about Cal. 
because of uh, the way he's acted in previous episodes. We saw it in the flashback already. Uh, the flashback is actually happening in this scene when he's explaining everything to uh, Dr. Capra. Of course, Capra, I guess, wouldn't have been there at the time. No, 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 no. God, I'm getting it all mixed up because let's see. So Cal Ingram was in the episode Horns in season six. It was the 13th episode, which means Phil Capra was already there. So I think they had already had a run in. So anyway, I'm just getting all this chronology mixed up, but uh, we know that he came in Might Makes Right was the first episode. The second episode was Lovers and Mad Men, the season five finale. The third episode was Horns in season six, and this will be the fourth episode. So there are four episodes with Cal Ingram. And um, what I was trying to get at without going on all these tangents is that um, Maurice is now worried for Cal if he's going to bring him back to this uh, mental hospital. He says that the uh, the doctors and the authorities there are going to cross-examine Cal pretty hard. And he's worried that they're going to be able to see the same Cal. And the, you know, the type of progress that Phil Capra thinks that Cal has gone through, will the authorities see that? Yeah, I think there's also something interesting to note in that Phil has a little bit of a psychiatry background behind him. He says that his old professor that used to teach him that was a little disappointed that he didn't go into that field. But oh, yeah. yeah, that's... Uh, kind of his what maurice would call his ballywick oh, yeah. interesting word what is that it's like one sphere of influence like their trade interesting yeah you bet you bet your bottom dollar i'm using that word that's that's a really good word i love that because i say that a lot i say like oh one sphere of influence but like no i can just say it in one word. it's even cooler <laughs> yeah and yeah i do i do appreciate that uh phil has like a little bit of a background in uh uh, psychology. That's a pretty, that's a pretty useful skill, I think, to have it not only in Sicily, but for the show, you know, cause they're going to be focusing a lot about, uh, psychoses and or not psycho. what's the word? Like our psyche, um, our, our psychology, you know? Oh, this is where I also wanted to compliment the director or I'm pretty sure it's the director. I don't know if they have a cinematographer on set that would also confer with the director on this, but I really like their usage of bars in this mm. episode. So, Heavily throughout the episode, we see characters that are confined within the bars. Uh, the biggest example is actually in this scene where we see Cal sitting in Phil's office. And when it cuts to him between the conversation between Maurice and Phil, he's behind the window oh, yeah. blinds that act mm -hmm. like bars. So it symbolizes bars right there. I'm just a huge person. I know it's like symbolism 101, but like <laughs> bars are my jam. I like grids. Grids in general, they're so cool. Yeah, I also just like the function of that shot. I mean, it, it has that great symbolism of bars, but also um, just the function of Maurice and Phil uh, looking out to Cal. It's the back of his head, and he's in like another room. He's separated. So they're like, they're spying him from afar, and they're both talking about him. He's not part of the conversation, but we get to hear their feelings and their thoughts and almost like um, the sense of, at least coming from Maurice, like, what are we going to do? Like, what's what's going to happen to Cal? Right. How are we going to protect him? I, like, he's not, he doesn't know the trouble that he's about to get into or that he's about to cause in this episode. Right, right. Great, great shot for that, just to communicate that separation. Yeah, but not only that, like, the window blinds themselves cast a shadow mm -hmm. of ours, Yeah, particularly yeah. on Maurice and Phil. We see that right there. And we're going to see it all throughout the episode is that there is a lot of window blinds being casted. Yeah, I definitely think that could be the the job of the director to choose 
shots like that, you know, and, and cinematography like that. But we should also shout out uh, Gordon Lonsdale, who was the cinematographer for this episode. And he did, I feel like he did like almost every episode in like season five and six. Yeah, he was just like a big player in all these episodes that we like in these uh, l- later seasons. Mm, okay. Well, going on to the next scene, we see Barbara arriving at the scene to arrest Cal. And Cal's willingly giving himself up. He says to get the uh, the cuffs. You know, that's the physical that's the physical symbol of the uh, yeah of the bars. Well, to continue down this plot line, um, Samansky, Maurice, and Cal—they're all doing this big road trip to Ellisburg, of course. And uh, the next time we join them, they are pulled off to the side of the road. Cal is taking a pee break, you know, peeing in the woods. Um, because yeah, they are like in the wilderness, kind of driving between small towns. There are no pit stops here, but um, Samansky and Maurice are standing on the side of the car waiting for Cal, and they're just kind of uh, talking shop, joking, chatting. We can see that their um, their chemistry is, you know, it's still there. They're they're friendly with each other. It's not cold and distant. I didn't really write down what they're talking about. Um, it's just kind of like. Uh, Again, it's just kind of like talking shop. Um, but what really caught my eye was the sort of body language of how they are uh, kind of friendly with each other here. And then um, as Cal is walking back to the car, I think Szymanski basically asks Maurice out on a date, like a hunting trip date kind of thing. And um, goes so far as to like by the end of the scene, she's like, we're going to have to stop at a motel later. So, um, is it in this scene where she's like, you know, you should come over to my room for a nightcap at the end of the night or something like that? Yeah, that's in the scene. Yeah. So, you know, she's really coming on thick with the flirting with Maurice by the end of this scene. And, um, this is one of the scenes where as Cal is walking back to the car, he talks about, you know, what if I did get my freedom, I could uh, start a quartet and, uh, get my, you know, my group back together and uh, go back into touring. So this moment made me think that the closer that Cal is getting to the salvation of freedom, the more he's going to be tempted with like the Guarneri del Jesu. I don't think that ever evolves into anything though in this episode. All right. And that brings us to the first night between all three of them right there. And I got to say, I really like this wide shot that's happening right here. So the setup is that we got the car on the you know lower third right there, all the characters are leaving the car, getting into their own rooms. On the foreground, there's a there's a sign of the hotel. It's yellow. It's got a lot of holes in it, and it's purposely in front of the camera. And then to the left of them is the characters in that wide shot. And you're way more experienced than me, Lee. So you'll you'll be able to correct me on this. But like in my nascent amateur opinion, I think you should like always go for the wide. The wide is so pretty. Yeah. It's so cool. Well, yeah, you just get so much, you get a lot of information. You know, you think about, um, I guess it's just the difference between like a portrait painting and a landscape or, or just a bigger scene. You know, you just get a lot more information and there is a lot of beauty in the close up as well, but the wide shot, you can communicate a lot of movement, body language, the close up, you can communicate a lot of that just like very nuanced detail of emotion in someone's face. Uh, so it's that's very useful too. But you can have a lot of great, not only what you're seeing, but the way the uh, 
The shot is composed in the wide shot. The mise-en-scene is what it's called. Like all of the elements mm-hmm. that make up the frame. Think about a wonderful painting you see in a museum. You know, some some frames are like paintings, you know. Well, that makes me curious. Like, why is that hotel shot so prominent right there? It, it is a very flashy yellow. It grabs our eye right there. But why do you think they included that in, in the shot? Uh, let me watch it real fast. I would I would assume it's to establish the location where they're at because it's like when we're returning to them, the last time we saw them, they were on the road. So we want to establish them in a new environment. Yeah, it's a good um, establisher for the motel. And the fact that we have this sort of neon sign a bit in the foreground definitely you know, very quickly visually explains that this is a motel. It looks kind of like a motel, this building, it's kind of like a short building uh, with, you know, with the rooms, it might even be like a little ice bucket or a trash bin right outside. But seeing that neon sign, even though we don't, can't read it, we just see like the bottom of one of the letters. You're like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is like a roadside motel, right? It, it communicates okay, yeah. that to me, I think. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I always forget about that, uh, that, subconscious element in which you have to introduce information to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we get that. Now we get into the hotel room. They're having dinner. Marty says, I don't know if they bought this stuff. I, I want to say they, they packed it like before they went on the road. Looks like a nice little picnic basket. I love those like wicker picnic baskets. And the one that Maurice has, like when he lifts the lid on the inside of the lid, there's like these straps that hold like a corkscrew, like uh, knives and forks. He even has like minestrone soup in a thermos. You know, it's like all, I like how it's all organized and packaged up. Uh, what are, They have sandwiches, right? I think that's what they're going to eat. Yeah, they have uh, two different types of sandwiches right there and an apple too. That's an really apple. important. Okay, yeah. You said that's really important? Yeah, it's important in that like it catches your eye. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. know if there's any uh, symbolic <laughs> importance right there. Yeah, it's a nice pop of color for sure. <laughs> uh, and in order to entertain them, they have Cal play his violin. Not the Gwinnuri, but his own violin. Yeah. Well, he says, um, would you mind, because, uh, well, they have to uncuff him so that he can eat. They don't have to, but Barbara's like, yeah, sure. Uh, Maurice is like, why don't you uncuff him? So she does. She says, sure, that's fine. And... Um, he says, would you mind, would it be terrible if I, you know, played just a little bit of violin to warm up my fingers? And they're like, yeah, sure. Like might as well. And it's going to make for a, a sort of a romantic moment. At least Maurice maybe hopes for that. But Barbara begins to uh, become pretty enraptured by the music, kind of fascinated by uh, Cal's playing. This was, again, another moment where I thought, Oh, oh, they're going to let Cal play the violin and he's going to go mad again. But uh, that's definitely, I think that's definitely not part of the episode. I think that's just something that I was inferring incorrectly. Of course, Cal has been playing violin this whole time, I, I would imagine. Uh, the last two, yeah, the last two episodes he played like in the auditorium for Sicily. And then the other episode might have been the same episode. He was like playing on people's roofs, playing violin. That was a little crazy, but uh I think the key thing that we're getting at in this scene is we first understand that Barbara is uh, sort of becoming spellbound by not only Cal's playing, but maybe she's um, she's mixing the two, like Cal and his playing. She can't separate the art from the artist. She's falling in love with Cal, maybe. Yeah, this is kind of where it lost me, where I was right. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't buy this. 
You don't buy that Barbara would, uh, yeah, or that anyone would just be like, well, I don't know. I mean, like, people fall in love with celebrities and and rock stars. No, 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 no. I get that. Like, in real life, you see someone, like, express something they're passionate about. Yeah, of course you can fall in love with them. It's just, like, in this moment. It's just, like, she was so ardent on capturing him, and now that she's finally got him, and now he plays, like, the violin once, and he's, he's like, oh, okay, now I'm very deeply infatuated with them felt like they were just writing that for plot plot convenience right there but i digress this might have been an interesting angle to pry at in earlier episodes because like samansky is you know the law in sicily in the area so um she would she has definitely taken cal in before she's uh searched for him trying to arrest him before as well but i guess has she never heard him play is that true like, even when he was playing on the rooftops, maybe she never heard him play. So this is her first time. Uh, certainly, it's her first time thinking about it and recognizing it and uh, seeing it for the beauty that it is. But I think that could have been a more interesting thing to bring up in earlier episodes where it's like, uh, we know that Szymanski is a bit of a stickler for the law and she wouldn't let anything sort of cloud her judgment. But now she's challenged by the music is so beautiful. Like, should I put this man behind bars where he could never play a violin again or something like that? Mm. But now we, now that we get it in this episode, I agree. The way it is revealed seems pretty quick. And it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I, I understand Barbara is now in love with Cal because he's so good. It, it seems a little convenient. Right. The scene ends with like a really crazy fade out so it's got like the jib shot that pulls up on the motel sign and it goes toward the sky and then it fades to a moon that was not there and then it fades out of that moon to go into the (laughs) next scene this is like a like a three-part phase right there i get why because they want to introduce i guess one like the passage of time yeah and like two they really want that moon imagery there but it's just What, what is the moon about there's a lot of moon in this episode well i was actually thinking about this do you think cow is associated with the moon because i want to say when he's playing up on the rooftop yeah. with his fiddle wasn't the moon there yeah i think so he may have talked about i know he talked about playing music like out into the open hills to nature you know i don't know if he mentioned the moon in earlier episodes but i'm guessing it was the episode lovers and madmen Because, you know, the moon is associated with, like, lunatics, I guess. So I'm assuming that's the episode uh, with the moon so uh, prominently featured. Mm. I guess that it can also... Okay, really stretching it, really stretching it. But the moon is a rock, right? And it's attached to the Earth due to gravitational pull? Sure. So, uh, sure, like, why why don't we just attach a little, little gravity theme here? A little inevitability of being attracted to something. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like giving you that pull yeah there we go and then we actually it fades still within them we're still with these three characters maurice is now trying to set up two glasses he almost wakes up cow but he doesn't <laughs> and he steps into barbara's room in order for a nightcap since he's got some remy uh which i'm assuming is remy martin uh cognac and This whole scene, Barbara still seems to be a bit in a daze. And um, she says something about like sometimes criminals or psychopaths can show signs of genius uh, in that that's that's how they fool you or something like that. But ultimately, I think she gives in to her sort of uh, this sort of state of trance in a way because she turns down Maurice's advances and sends him back to his room 
So I don't believe she uh, she has a nightcap. She wants Maurice to go away, and she's uh, probably got a lot to think about with Cal, I guess. Like, what's, what's going on there? Uh, something that I thought was interesting to note is that she keeps fighting back against Maurice, saying that it would be an act of impropriety if, you know, she was drinking on the job or having some fun after after her shift, even though she's still transporting a prisoner. So she's still got the duty of a police officer. But then when we get to the next scene and they're at the gas station, she actually lets Cal out of his handcuffs. And Cal says that, you know, it's not a big deal. Like, I, I get why I have to be in these. It's part of your job. And she says, no, it's not. I'm not giving you special treatment. This is at the discretion of a police officer. Which means that she applies this discretion whenever she wants to. Yeah. So she could have also said that for Maurice, too. She could have been like, ah, like, you know, police officer's discretion. I can just, you know, I can drink on the job. But now she's saying it for Cal. Yep. Uh, Things are starting to turn there. Also, um, we get some kinks in our progression here because... Uh, Maurice notices when, I guess, looking at a map or something, or he notices that they took the wrong highway. They're like 200 miles off track. Like they're gonna have to backtrack 200 miles. And Maurice, maybe he doesn't say it, but he's thinking that it's possible that Szymanski did this on purpose so that she could spend more time with Cal because they're gonna have to stop again at at a, a motel, I think. And Cal lets on as well that he's, uh, disappointed because he really wants to set things straight, make things right, turn himself in and uh, one step closer to his freedom. You know, he wants to really get there as soon as he can. But he also says no harm done because it's just one more day. And yes, of course, they're going to have to stay at a, at a motel again. Um, but I can move us on to the next scene, which is at the motel. Once again, we see the full moon we see it a lot in this episode, not just in this plot line. And I keep thinking like, how many nights can you have a full moon? I know that the, you know, the night after the full moon, it's not like it goes, it shrinks or anything, but you know, it's, it stick, it stays uh, pretty bright and full, but we do get to see it a lot in this episode on multiple nights. I'm thinking anyway, Maurice is waiting outside. Uh, I'm not really sure why, but there is a conversation that happens. Barbara comes out of her room And he calls her out basically um, saying that she's letting her feelings for Cal cloud her judgment in regards to the law. And he's uh, saying like, how dare you? She says, "I, I enjoy his violin playing. And he says, I don't begrudge you that. But when you disobey orders, that's a horse of a different color. And now Barbara sounds kind of like Maurice earlier in the episode because she says she's worried that the shrinks at Ellisburg are not gonna see what, they can see that Cal is an extraordinary person capable of rehabilitation. And this is something that Maurice was himself thinking about earlier in the episode, but now it's uh, it's taken a whole new flavor here now that he's, I don't know if he's jealous or hurt that, that things aren't going the way he thought it would with Barbara, but he tells her uh, that this is not her responsibility. The idea being that she's like the executive branch of the law not the judicial branch, you know, like she's supposed to just bring Cal to the proper authorities. She doesn't get to make a judgment on his character. Right. And she also makes a note to say that she's afraid that Cal would change if he goes through this rehabilitation. She's saying that like, you know, what if they foist upon him their do-gooder agenda and their medication and start messing with him and fundamentally change who Cal is, Yeah, which would mean that I can't 
still fall in love with him, which (laughs) kind of brings up a question is like how much of that was fundamental to Cal and how much of that was not Cal? How much of that was just uh, a disorder within him? So like, which one are you falling in love with? Yeah. What is she falling in love with? Is she falling in love with the disorder? Is she falling in love with the person or... I mean, she's falling in love with the music, it seems like, you know, mm-hmm. but it is, an, it is an interesting distinction. I like that dilemma of like, when they're through with him, you know, when he's rehabilitated, is he's going to be the same? We next get Maurice and Barbara and Cal at a pit stop. Something's wrong with the vehicle. I'm not really, I didn't write down what it was, but it's not going to be a huge deal because um, they're going to be able to fix it within like an hour but uh, they're just kind of sitting around waiting on some roadside stop garage or something like that. Maurice uh, says he's going to go run and grab them some refreshments. So Barbara and Cal get a moment to speak with each other. And Cal makes it pretty abundantly clear that he's like, we have until sundown tonight. And he reminds her that, you know, he really wants to get there so that he can clear his name He can get through the process of rehabilitation and become a free man once again. But more importantly, he also reminds her that it's not only necessary for him to get back, it's necessary that Barb turns him in on time, like within that time frame, or else she will also have failed in her duties. So Mm -hmm. um, he's trying to shake her back to reality in a way. I like how polite and English he is, you know, uh, but he is, uh, he's definitely, you know, he's getting his point across. Right. Uh, it's actually kind of a neat thing. I, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but whenever we end the scene, we have Maurice leave the uh, the establishment to go bring them their coffee and their YouTube. And the, is that a takeout box? Is that what you call it? When you, uh, when you put coffee oh, in? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like a little to-go box kind of thing. Yeah, uh, to-go box. Take-out yeah. box, yeah. And when Maurice leaves the establishment with the to-go box, the Yuhu, which is what Cal requested, right. is in the middle of the two coffees that Maurice and Barbara are drinking. Oh, like it's in between the two. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. He's, he's like breaking, <laughs> spreading them apart. I like that Cal asks for a Yuhu, and I also like that we get to hear Cal's full name is... Caldecott Evelyn Ingram. Uh, he Is that says, her actual name? Or he says e- Evelyn. Caldecott Evelyn Ingram is what he says his full name is. Is that a real name? I think so. Uh, I've heard it of is the a Cal- last name. Yeah, I've heard of the Caldecott Award, right? Yeah, that one recognizes the preceding year's most distinguished American picture book for children, which is, that actually sounds really great. I remember all the, all like, yeah, whenever a book had a Caldecott medal on it, like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, heck yeah. This is going to be good. <laughs> best bedtime story or is best that, like library time. Is know? that what I think it is? Let me see. Yeah, you've It's seen like the it. one with like that gold medal. The Caldecott medal, yeah. Oh, uh, you can like touch it on the book too? Yeah, like it had like an embossed uh, feel lifted. or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's Those so funny. Cool. Um, but he also goes by Cotty for short. So she starts to she starts to call, Barbara starts to call Cal um, Cotty. But he's mm. that's when he's like, Listen, lady, like we got to get back, uh, you know, more or less. But they make it to Ellisburg and uh, they turn over Cal. Yeah. And they got that established shot of bars once again. Right. Yes. We look yeah. out of that window. We see the grids right there. It's actually a really cool setup because what's happening here is that it's a really long hallway that is just going in one direction, either to or away, like all hallways. So that's right. not 
yeah, that's not brilliant. But the cool <laughs> thing is that it's really, it's a very long extended one with the, with leading lines. So they bring Cal in, the doctors are evaluating him. They're saying like, all right, I'm glad you're here. Let's get you going. And both Barbara and Maurice say like, hey, I want it noted in the books that he's coming here willingly, voluntarily. And I want that to be recorded somewhere. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And they try to give him some passing advice saying their goodbyes and everything. And when he leaves, it's really extended. It makes it so far away yeah, as if he's never coming back. And when they leave, it also mirrors that where the hallway just extends further and further down due to the, just like the grids on the windows help sells that imagery. Yeah. But it's really the leading lines from the shadows yeah, like that the are creating that. Yeah. It creates that perspective. Yeah. 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 That's a great way to, to film that. Uh, you know, as as uh, Cal is taken away, Maurice and Barbara have a couple lines before they leave, but we still get to see Cal in the background getting further and further away. Yeah, I love that imagery. I also wanted to talk about quickly what Maurice says to Barbara here as they're taking Cal when they're you know they've taken Cal away. He says, "No matter what happens between the two of us, Barbara, I want you to know that you did the right thing." And I don't know. I guess there's that to me saying that uh, Maurice is like, I can get over it, you know, your infatuation with Cal, I can get over it. Is he still wanting Barbara to uh, be his partner or or what? what is happening in that scene, in that line, I guess? Mm, yeah, I took it as Maurice kind of being the better person. Yeah. Being like, okay, so let's draw a parallel between these two characters. Maurice was hiding the fugitive from the law against Barbara, and he acted against his own duties. He went with bold-faced sentimentality, as he said this episode. And now it's reversed. Now Barbara is basically doing the same thing right there. But the difference between the two is that Maurice didn't swear off his relationship with Barbara, because Barbara had the ultimatum against Maurice and said, like, if you don't show me him, yeah. we're done. And in this one, now Maurice is saying, like, you know... I get it. I've been on the other end of this and you know, it's fine. Yeah. I think that might be it. He's like kind of, uh, showing his, uh, maturity in this situation and, uh, the, be- you know, being the better man or, um, just, I, I don't know, trying to show that he's grown past those, uh, those feelings of jealousy and things like that. There is another scene with them, right? Mm-hmm. There you got the last scene, which is at the brick. Barbara enters in through the window shades, which again, act like grids. Got to keep getting that imagery in. And she goes in and says that she realizes that it was just a transport infatuation. It was just like a passing thing. She says, I want a real relationship, not a schoolgirl crush. And Maurice, maybe having one, he's like, all right, she's come back to me. She wants me. He does the mature thing too here in the situation. (laughs) Uh, you know, he's, he's grown enough to be honest. Oh, he says it himself. I'm honor bound is what he says. He shows her this letter from Cal. He says, I'm honor bound to show you this letter from Cal. And it arrived this morning and she's reading the letter. We get some flashes to Cal, um, sort of as she's reading the letter, but she explains that he's in a halfway home in Talkeetna or rather, I think it's, um, it's not, it's not Barbara, reading it, we hear it being read by Cal's like voiceover, I think. 
He says that he's in a halfway home in Talkeetna and he wants to eventually come and visit Sicily again to see all of his friends there. He also says he's been watching The Nanny, the TV show. Uh, there's a lot of different things. Like he's been gardening. Like we see him doing all these activities, um, you know, sweeping the porch, cleaning his toilet. At the very end, it says, P.S., please extend my kindest regards to Officer Szymanski. And she's, she seems to be very happy to hear this and read this. But Szymanski says in the end, she confirms that this doesn't change her feelings for Maurice. So... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what exactly to read from this whole plot line, but I guess the status quo at the end is that Maurice and Szymanski are on good terms and are, uh, you know, probably considering, uh, moving further in a relationship. I think that the thing they're trying to say, which is connecting with the other plot lines once we get to it, is that there is a power to rituals. Ah. When we see Cal cleaning the porch or pruning the shrubbery and watching television during dinner, it provides him a sort of uh, order to his life. And, you know, Chris even has that in his radio broadcast at the break today where he says, quoting from Ralph Waldo Emerson, Manners are the happy ways of doing things, each once a stroke of genius or of love, now repeated and hardened into usage. They form at last a rich varnish with which the routine of life is washed and its details adorned. If they are superficial, then so are the dewdrops, which give such a depth to the morning meadows. So, yeah, even Mr. Emerson is saying that, hey, you gotta have some consistency. You gotta have a North Star to you. I like that. Manners are a stroke of genius and uh, a stroke of love, like all, all at once. What is that? Uh, it, it's not a superhero one. It's it's like an action one. And I think it has like Colin Farrell in it. Like a movie? Or Colin, uh, yeah, it's a movie. The Kingsman. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's like Manners Make Us Men. Oh, I don't know. I've seen it, but... I'm not very, like, I've watched it, like, probably, like, at my parents' house or something on TV. I always saw the trailer, but I know that's in the oh. trailer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. I mean, that that wraps us up for Barbara and Maurice, and we get a nice, I do like the tie-in there to the order of routine and the sort of nirvana that that can bring you to, in a way. But let us track back and discuss the other plot lines of the episode. I have a proposal, Charles. There's So there's mm -hmm. Chris uh, learning how to dance and the cotillion and stuff. I think that could be wrapped together in a plot line. But I also could think that maybe we could even wrap in Dr. Phil. I think that's the other plot line. I think that could also fall in with the whole like manners and cotillion stuff. Unless you wanted to keep them separate. We could just talk about it all together. Uh, no, we can go to it together, which okay. would just mean we're just going to go chronologically down the episode now. Yeah, basically so. We'll, we'll go through the rest of the episode, focusing on Chris's storyline and uh, Phil Capper, which I feel it feels a little less, but he kind of fits in with the, with the manners uh, subplot here. It all begins because uh, the Cappers are having some guests over for dinner. It's uh, the Whirlwinds. It's Marilyn and Miss Whirlwind, who's Marilyn's mom. And Ed is also there. And uh, unknowingly, Phil does something a bit uh, rude or uncouth. He, um, he remarks that there's like hardly any tiramisu left. So he like puts some extra tiramisu on Mrs. Whirlwind's plate. Like, why don't you finish it up? You know, it's uh, there's not very much left. You can have the rest of it. You can finish this off. 
uh, thinking that would be a nice gesture to give her the, you know, the last piece of tiramisu. But as we can see, um, there's like a bit of uh, reaction going on, like uh, facial body language, uh, not not verbal, but I feel like Miss Whirlwind looks to uh, to Marilyn and and maybe to Ed, and Ed like looks maybe uncomfortable, like doesn't know what to do or say. But right then, Phil asks Ed to come help him with some firewood. So they step out of the room to gather some firewood, and Ed is like. Uh, I really don't want to, well, actually Ed doesn't, doesn't say anything. Phil has to ask Ed. He's like, come on, Ed, what is it? What is it? And Ed's like, well, you, you, uh, you made a pretty serious breach of etiquette whenever you gave that tiramisu to Mrs. Whirlwind because, uh, telling it aren't supposed to leave any food on the plate. It's a big insult to the host. So you basically like gave her more food, like she was full and she had to finish, uh, eating a whole nother slice of tiramisu. So this plot line is unraveling. Basically, uh, Phil has has uh, unknowingly done something wrong, a social faux pas, and he needs to try to correct this. Basically, like every episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Larry David like does something <laughs> socially uh, inappropriate and has to apologize but, for it. But the thing with uh, with Larry is that like deep down, the viewer can understand Larry. Sort of like they're secretly on Larry's side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Larry doesn't care, but he's like, I'll do it because I'll apologize because I have to get something else, you know, <laughs> from this exchange. Uh, some small details to note is that I do like the camera work on the food this episode. So this happens twice. Oh, yeah. In order to bring details to it. So one is on the tiramisu. The camera goes to a close-up of it of Phil wiping it off the plate and going into Ms. Whirlwind's plate. And then we're going to see it down the road whenever he's dipping his sausage into the egg where we get the close-up of that. So the camera is bringing in a lot of focus toward there. And the second detail is that when they go outside to get the firewood between Phil and Ed, Ed makes a remark and says, you know, it's some moon tonight, huh? Yeah, they uh, they keep bringing up that moon, right? Uh, that definitely plays a part in this plot line uh, as we'll get too, but um, we're next introduced to Chris's, I guess you could call it inciting incident. Uh, in the brick, there is Zydeco music blaring and everyone is dancing. Uh, Maggie asks Chris to get up for a dance and he seems to be absorbed into something else, uh, like reading a newspaper or something. And um, he turns her down. He's like, oh, no, 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 thanks. And uh, this guy sitting next to Chris, he, we learn his name is Bert. He steps up and asks Maggie to dance, but she looks over to Chris and decides, no, sorry, Bert, no thanks. So Shelly enters the scene as well. And she says, you know, I don't think I've ever noticed. I don't think I've ever seen Chris dance before. She, she says, uh, hoof it. I don't think I've ever seen him hoof it before. And he explains that it's a center of gravity thing. I hear the music, but it's a long distance from my ears to my feet. That's kind of our beginning here. We understand that Chris doesn't dance. Maybe that's going to be a problem. Uh, also in this scene, Phil bumps into Mrs. Whirlwind and uh, tries to apologize to her here. Now, now, Charles, why don't you take this? What what happens here? Yeah, so this is where I got a little bit worried for the plot line, <laughs> where I thought it was going to be like a whole Russian doll situation of Phil constantly messing up. <laughs> but what's happening here is that Phil kind of indirectly forces Mrs. Whirlwind to give a yes or no answer, which is also 
not something you're supposed to do in Teen League culture. And he gets told this by Hayden, who walks past and inadvertently witnesses this. And Hayden kind of bemoans about it, saying, like, that's not what you're supposed to do over here. And then Hauling comes in and chimes in and says, like, yeah, you 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 can't do that because we have we have culture, we have etiquette here. You can't just throw that out the window. I mean, just look at Sleep Mute on a Saturday night. <laughs> this town prides itself on that. And, you know, we learned it all from Cotillion. Something that's been happening for apparently 70 years in this town, <laughs> taught by Marilyn. Yeah, she's she's a teacher now. Marilyn's the new teacher for Cotillion. Uh, but Holling does bring up, I wanted to touch on what you were saying about Holling. He says, like, think about it. Sicily is, like, full of, like, all these people from different places, lots of wilderness around. Like, we have to stick to our manners or else it'd be chaos. It's like you said, Charles, it's like it's uh, it'll be like sleep mute on a Saturday night or whatever. So I agree with you, Charles, where you're like, oh, dear, it's just going to be an episode where Phil just continually makes a social misstep one after the other. I thought it was really funny when Hayden is like trying to explain to Phil, he says, never corner a Tlingit elder into a direct yes or no answer. And I was, I wrote down in my notes, this is beginning to sound like uh, gremlins rules or something, you know, like <laughs> don't feed them after midnight, don't get them wet. Uh, it's just like, as the episode goes on, Phil's going to learn something, a new uh, rule that he has to follow to be a Sicilian. But no, it does factor into this Cantillion thing that Marilyn is uh, teaching. We get uh, a scene where all these young kids are, I guess, learning to dance, you know, in the Cantillion class. And Chris has joined. This reminds me of those episodes where, like, uh, there's an episode where Holling tries to finish his, like, high school GED or whatever to get his, like, high school diploma. And he goes to school in Sicily. And it's like, a bunch of kids, like one fifth grader and like Holling Vancouver, who's like <laughs> 60 something years old. Uh, so we got now Chris, a grown man in a dancing class with a bunch of kids and uh, all the kids have partners. So Chris gets to dance with Marilyn. I guess it makes sense. They're more the appropriate size match, you know, mm -hmm. but as this is going on, all the kids are sort of like watching Chris and giggling under their breath and sort of making snide remarks under their breath. Marilyn has to like stop the class and be like, okay, what's going on here? Uh, she singles out a girl named um, Miss Spencer. We later get her, her full name is Tori Spencer. Do you recognize this, uh, this little actress here? Uh, no, who is this? So I knew I recognized her from something and I was like, is she in another episode of Northern Exposure? But it's not that. Uh, she is in a movie that the Subtextual Podcast covered, Now and Then. She plays a pretty big role in that movie, Now and Then, uh, as a child child actor. I think I think that movie is about, like, um, we get to see these characters when they're children and then when they're adults. It's kind of like It, but without the <laughs> clown, you know? <laughs> but it's like, uh, you know, we see them as in their childhood and then we see them as adults as well. And different actors are playing the kid versions and the uh, adult versions. and. Um, the actress is named Ashley Aston Moore. Uh, unfortunately, I was trying to, when I was trying to figure out who this was and I was like, oh, that's who it is. I found her Wikipedia page and learned that she died of a heroin overdose at 26. Ah, geez. I guess that, that is definitely, yeah, that definitely is a thing. Uh, I would imagine even still today, like child actors have a pretty rough go at, uh, at life, you know? 
you know, I honestly, I thought for a second you were going to say that this was like the body double for Lindsay Lohan and Parent Trap. <laughs> yeah. Like, Very about to say that. <laughs> kind of vibe, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, I do find it odd. Okay. Like, okay, let me rephrase this. I can buy into it, but I got to suspend my disbelief a little bit. Chris is supposedly like the hunkiest man in Sicily. <laughs> he is the catch. And yet all these 13 year olds are clowning on him. They're like, ah, look at this guy. Learn to tell it. I'm like, isn't like, I'm surprised he's not like a heartthrob amongst the 13 year old girls. Also, we've definitely seen him dance. Like they're, I can't think of it. I can't think of a specific moment, but like, how could we have gone six seasons with all these scenes where people are dancing? Chris dances in a scene, right? Like there's gotta be scenes of him dancing. Yeah. There's gotta to be. be like, this yeah. is something that, yeah. I mean, it's funny that it's like, oh yeah, Chris is such a hunk. Like he can't dance, but that's like, he can't do this in season six or it can't be this character. Right. Like I, I get why I, I get why they're doing it. So like, okay, so skipping to the end of the episode, I'm assuming they're having cotillion because this is something that Chris lacked when he was going through his formative years. Yeah. This was not something that was taught to him. So in order to quote unquote proceed with his relationship with Maggie, he kind of has to go through the motions of an ordinary person to have an ordinary relationship. So he goes through and we lives 10 through 13 learns etiquette so that now he can properly do these things with Maggie. So that's forming more of a backbone on the relationship. And that's when Maggie comes in at the end and you know, she isn't throughout the episode. That's what I'm assuming they're trying to yeah. say for Chris, but I don't know if dancing has to be the outlet for him to relearn the things that he missed out on, on his formative years. But you know, that's just my own reading. God knows what it's actually yeah. happening here. But anyway, we return back to Phil in his own house, dipping his sausages into his eggs, which I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, I don't. I was going to ask you, do you do that? I don't, I, but I, don't. I wouldn't. Yeah, but that's I also, wouldn't like castigate anyone for that. Runny eggs are. Yeah, I mean, what is the etiquette? Like, how do you eat that? Because it's going to get. I imagine if you're eating a runny fried egg, you're supposed to like sop it up, you know, with other ingredients. Yeah, with the bread. But apparently that is a, that is a social faux pas as well because Michelle uh, suggests to Phil that maybe he should go to Cotillion. And she's like, come on, don't you, can't you see it? Like your table manners are not your strong suit. And Phil is like, oh, come on, Michelle. Like I'm in, I'm at my kitchen table. Like I'm at home in privacy. But Michelle argues, you know, you can't just like put on your best behavior in front of strangers and then like, act like it's perfectly normal to eat like an animal in front of your own wife, you know, like show some decency. There is a reason for manners, I guess, is what she's underlining. Like the rest of this episode is trying to show is like, there's a reason why we do things with manners, not just uh, to be uptight and socially acceptable, but uh, it's a common courtesy and it's a, a way of showing love, I guess, to other people too. If we're taking part of that, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote as well. I also wrote in my notes here for this scene, something about 20,000 Hertz. What was, um, Oh, he sucks in his food. Apparently <laughs> really loud. Yeah. Michelle calls it. Yeah. It's like 20,000 Hertz uh, or something. But, uh, that is like, that is almost like supersonic. That's like close to like dog 
range of hearing. It must be like dog range <laughs> of hearing. I know that that's like at the very upper limit of human hearing, 20,000 hertz. That's a little too high. Mm. But I, yeah, I get what she's saying. I will say, and, and, and a little bit in Phil's defense, is that like it is a little bit of an environment issue. So like for me specifically, I am really terrible at using a knife to cut meat like steak or anything like that or any meals that require a fork and a knife because I didn't grow up eating those types of stuff. I grew up eating rice, which uses, you know, either a spoon or chopsticks. It's like much, yeah, much more simpler. So I never actually learned that even to this day, like I still don't eat that much. So whenever I get invited to some sort of formal dinner or like some wedding and, you know, there's like etiquette involved. You have to like take your time uh, and I'm, focus. You're like, I usually just not choose the dish. I'm like, I'm yeah, not, I'm not ordering the steak. I'm going <laughs> to get like the fish or something. Right. But yeah, I mean, um, it's enough to send Phil to Cotillion because he's going to end up showing up to some of these classes. But uh, next time we see is going to be Chris at K-Bear playing some like piano music on the radio and uh, the little girl who was uh, who was mean to Chris in class. Uh, her mom has, has come to K-Bear. She's got the girl uh, Tori now. And, um, what is it like? Uh, I think it's, I think it's the mom that's like, Marilyn says that Tori, uh, has to give you dance lessons, Chris. I, I don't know who, who explains it, but I think it's actually Tori. Who's like, uh, Marilyn said, I'm supposed to be here to give you dance lessons and neither of us can go back to Cantillion until you learn how to waltz and I'm supposed to teach you. And, uh, it's kind of funny cause they kind of bicker like little children even though Chris is a grown adult, he's like, heck no. Like they start fighting uh, like kids. And uh, Chris is like, I'm going to call up Marilyn right now and sort this out. And he calls her up. And of course, we only see his side of the conversation. I don't know exactly what Marilyn says. Probably probably doesn't say much at all, you know, just as as Marilyn would. But it's it convinces Chris where he's like, he hangs up the phone and he's like, uh, she says we have to, so let's do it. <laughs> we gotta, <laughs> we gotta waltz. Which is, in a way, a kind of sweet thing because he's doing it all for Maggie. Yeah, presumably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's going through to bring her a little bit right there. Yeah, maybe Marilyn on the phone was like, you know, if you really want to dance with Maggie, this is how you're going to do it, <laughs> or something. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> well, now we get to what I think is actually Phil's first dream sequence. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I think so. I would imagine, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a really wild one. I, I'm not actually a fan of it. So it's, <laughs> it's really straightforward. Yeah. So essentially the moon that has been shown so prominently transforms Phil into a werewolf who then chomps down on the pot roast and and Michelle acts like it's business as per usual. And oh, wait, I also wanted to say really quickly, the book that he is reading is uh, etiquette in society, in business, in politics, and at home, which is frequently referenced as etiquette. It's a book authored by Emily Post in 1922, and it's got like 19 editions of it. Wow. Yeah, that's the core rulebook of uh, of etiquette, it sounds like. Um, yeah, the Wolfman transformation. Uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit fun. It's a nice little dream sequence moment. I... For a moment, I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be real, but it, when it starts off, it's like, what if there's an episode where Phil turns into a wolf man? Because we've had episodes where like Maggie's dead ex-boyfriend is uh, reincarnated as a dog, you know, like 
it would have been a little far to uh, have an episode where Phil turns into a wolfman, but it starts off like it could be real. And then, of course, when once you see Michelle and she, as you said, Charles, as she um, continues to operate as if uh, it's like business as usual, you're like, okay, this is not reality. Also interesting to notice, I was uh, looking over the DVD uh, earlier today. This scene on the DVD is in black and white. Oh, what? On the uh, Blu-ray that we're watching is in color. And I guess actually what we should do right now is check streaming. See if it's in color or black and white. Okay, so it is in color on Amazon Prime. So here's what I think. I think that the black and white was what we would have saw if we watched it on broadcast. The reason I think that is, so the black and white would have been a process that they did to the footage after they shot it. And uh, this process would have been done probably on video and then uh, delivered as, you know, a video program to be broadcast on television. Whereas when you're looking at the the Blu-rays that we're watching, Charles, and I'm guessing the uh, the HD version of the show on Amazon Prime, they're probably restoring the footage from film, you know, from this high quality, uh, high definition film uh, to scan that and give us 1080p. And so they're not going to be able to like go back and find like the video quality uh, versions of like the, the video processes, like the black and white or we've we've noted before, Charles, is any time that they do a sort of special effects shot, it's not in 1080p when we're watching it on the Blu-rays. So that makes me think that um, that this black and white process was probably what we would have saw on TV, I think. So the whole scene, I guess when Phil wakes up, it's not black and white, but um, the whole scene of him like going into Wolfman is is black and white. Can you explain that uh, off the mic? Can you explain that in layman's term? Did they just apply a filter on post-production of black and white? And they're like, all right, cool. That's how we're going to air it. But then whenever they got to the DVDs, like the Blu-rays and like streaming services, they they just use like the quote-unquote raw footage? So I can explain it. Um, I think it'd be – yeah, I should, I should explain it a little further. But um, so the DVD that, you're wa- that we're watching, the DVDs that they have are standard definition – which is what you would watch on TV. I mean, today you have high definition TV, but back in the nineties, it was standard definition uh, and it was video, you know? So the DVDs, they could have taken the video masters, whatever they did, you know, whatever they broadcast for TV, they could have taken that and, you know, transcoded it, digitized it for DVD. But for the uh, HD remasters, like for the HD Blu-ray and the HD um, streaming, you couldn't take this um, this standard definition and like up-res it. I mean, I guess you could, but it wouldn't be uh, the right way to do it. What they would have probably done is to take the original film, I'm assuming, and uh, scan that uh, because film would have a higher quality than this like standard definition video. Does that, are you following me there? Yeah, I, I think so. So the final piece here is that any sort of... Um, digital effect they did, even something as simple as taking uh, the film and coloring it to black and white, they would not have done that effect and then printed it back on film. They would have, cause you know, they're just, they're trying to put it on television. They're not going to project it in a theater. So they would have like done this, this uh, special effects processing, and then they would have finalized it onto like a master video, 
you know, standard definition. And then that would have been sent to broadcast. Mm. So all these effects that are done, there's no high definition version of the of the like special effects, you know, I'm assuming. So every single special effect that it's doing is, I, I'm assuming it's because CGI is not a thing back then. So they literally did it on the film, like they drew on the film itself? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is uh, they, they did, you know, they, they took this film, they converted it to a video format, maybe to edit it. I don't know if they edited it as film, mm-hmm. uh, but basically uh, we're getting really in the weeds here, but basically the, um, the special effects that they would have done yeah, I see what you're saying. Like they couldn't have done the special effects on the film. Like there are some special effects processes that are done to the film, like the actual film strip. Mm-hmm. But what I'm suggesting is they did it all digitally. Like all these special effects they probably did. It would have made sense for them to do it like with computers, you know, or um, done it in a video format, not in a film format, I'm assuming. Which is why anytime there's like a special effects shot, the quality that we're seeing on the Blu-rays dips down to like a lower standard definition quality. Like it's not high res, it's not high def, right? Mm-hmm. It's because the effect shots themselves were never, they were never made in high definition, I'm assuming. Is oh, that making sense? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I bet if we were in person and you drew uh, a flip chart for me, it would make more sense. <laughs> right. Um, and this, a, is, okay. this is speculation, but I'm assuming that's how they would have, how, I'm assuming that's what they would have done. And that's why we're seeing the, those sort of, um, you know, just randomly while we're watching these HD videos, it'll drop down for like a certain shot. And it might be something as simple as, oh, they cropped the shot a little bit. Like that's a, mm-hmm. that's a special effects process in a way. Or, you know, it might be, that they're doing some crazy spark effects, like with the Ed's little green man. Mm-hmm. Like that whole episode had, it was jumping back and forth between 1080 and video quality, standard definition video quality because of all these like sparkles that the green man has like uh, dripping off of him, you know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Sidebar uh, aside. Yeah. I'm going to carry it to the next scene. All right. And we continue down Chris's plotline with... Him back with Tori, where they have another failed attempt at learning how to dance. But this time, Tori kind of rummages through Chris's belongings, uh, sees through his books, and realizes that he's a pretty big fan of Camus. I mean, Cam- is it Camus? Camus? Oh, Camus. I never could say his name. Camus. Pretty big fan of Camus, which she is too. But she can only do, like, the first couple of lines. She can't even get the meaning of them. She says, uh, oh, here, I wrote it down. Mother died today or something, something yesterday, but mother died today. And he's like, yeah, you, you, you knew the first line or something. The first line I, I pulled it up is a uh, mother died today or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. But, uh, did you ever read the stranger? I kind of feel like we maybe, did we ever like read that in book club? I don't remember it. Maybe we like proposed no. it. I think we proposed it, and I don't think we actually ever dipped down and read it. I know that Addy is a big fan of Camus. He was really big into that one about Sisyphus, which is that also The Stranger? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember if I've read The Stranger. I don't think I have. I remember one of my roommates was really into The Stranger. Uh, uh, there is a there is a Camus essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. That's probably what, what we're talking about. Yes, that is the one. Uh, but no, I never really got into him. I'm just actually not a really big philosophy buff. Uh, it's, well, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Yeah, I'm just too dumb. <laughs> like, I can <laughs> not smart usually, usually not grasp that. 
Uh, yeah. But what I do, what I do agree with on this scene is with Chris heavily when he's saying like, you know, you can say the first line and everyone can do that, but digging the meaning, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And I really agree with that because a lot of times I see people watch like a lot of films or read a lot of books, which is great. It's great that you're watching the stuff and reading all these things. You're doing that, but it almost seems like you're passively consuming it rather than actively engaging with the material. So in a way, I would rather have like a really insightful conversation with somebody who has seen, I don't know, uh, Sex and the City, let's say that film, who has seen Sex and the City and can actually go into the depths of it and talk about the character dynamics and why they chose to do certain decisions than somebody who's seen like a thousand films but couldn't even tell me any of that on any of them. Yeah, I agree with you there, Charles. I also want to add to, it's like film, television, these are mediums that can communicate a lot through an image without having to use a lot of words without having to explain a lot of stuff, but to still express feelings and ideas. And I think, you know, maybe most people who, you know, don't uh, quote unquote dig the meaning, you know, they can still get that feeling and they can still understand and process uh, what, you know, it's not necessarily what is being said to them because it's not verbal all the time. It can be expressed in other ways. Uh, but having said that, I think it is important to dig the meaning, as Chris says. You know, I think it's important to uh, to think about why uh, this piece of art, film, TV, literature, whatever, why it's having this effect on you. Um, it's not. I mean, it's it's not enough. Oh. It's, it's great to enjoy something, but I think you can also uh, enrich your own experience and enjoyment and learn more about yourself and a lot of things by yeah, engaging yeah, yeah. with it. No, no, no. I totally agree with you there. Uh, let me rephrase it then, because uh, that is not what I meant. Oh, no, uh, no, no, no. I didn't say, no, no, no. Yeah, I didn't think you were saying that. I was just also pointing out um, that it, that it me, does have that. But go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Right. Let me attach a, uh, an amendment to this in that uh, the, the umbrage that I take is if you watch like a thousand films, but you think that you are like a film buff. Now, if you're just like a regular person who's just like watching films, and, you know, you do, you watch it at a regular amount and you read a regular amount. Yeah, that's fine. Like whatever enjoyment that you can derive from that, I think that's wonderful. I think that's good. I, I think that the distinction that I'm making here is if you start professing yourself as saying like, oh, I'm like, I'm really good at this stuff because I've watched a lot of films. It's like, ah, I don't know if that's enough. Like that, that's where I'm drawing the line. Yeah. It's about engaging with the art and, uh, you know, having a deeper understanding Digging the meaning, as Chris says, and uh, you know, Tori, she has she has her own interpretation, different from Chris's, and I can see that Chris uh, admires that, even though like he has a different you know read on the stranger. He's like, oh, you you dig the uh, the existentialism, right? Have you ever read any Kierkegaard? She says, I don't like the sound of his name, uh, but he's like, yeah, I should I should uh, introduce you to um, fear and trembling. He says. Um, I've never read any Kierkegaard, but I know he is, a he's, a uh, yeah, he's a very influential philosopher, um, on a lot of like movies and, and filmmakers that I've watched and stuff. But, um, Tori, you know, basically says that this is kind of nerdy stuff. She likes it, but she can't, she can't be uh, thought of as a nerd. She's also like, we learn later that she's like one of the popular girls. Yeah. And she says that, you know, it's bad enough that I'm seen talking to a dweeb like you, but I don't want to have to go and engage in a full conversation with you on this type of stuff. 
Uh, so, you know, she's got some stuff she's got to work through. Which brings us to the next scene where we're back at this town hall-esque thing. Which is just Marilyn talking about the social faux pas that you should avoid. So we've moved beyond dancing. And we're getting to the Q&A right here where all the kids are chiming in and Phil drops by to also take a little note from this. Yeah, Marilyn is doing like a etiquette quiz. Which side of the family is supposed to look after the grandkids? Who's supposed to host the potlatch? Uh, and all the kids are answering. Phil jumps in. He sits next to Chris, who is, of course, back at uh, the etiquette classes. Chris says, um, you know, she asks Chris uh, the etiquette of dance partners. And Chris says, uh, you're supposed to dance with the person who brought you. And, of course, he's wrong. Like, the kids correct him. Like, you do for the first and last dance. Um, but other, there's always, there's always, it's a lot to get into technically, but the end of the scene is also another button when, um, Phil says, are all these rules true for a Tlingit dance as well? Is it the same thing? And Marilyn says, oh no, no, we're not as strict. Is that supposed to be like a comedy beat as well? Or what does that mean? Yeah. That's I think I, that's like a comedy button yeah. right there. That's a way for them to like tie up that scene. I don't, I don't know if there's anything of, um substantial value that's being brought there she's basically like you know well we're not that strict but she is teaching a cotillion class so it's like mm-hmm. she seems strict but the telling it ways it seems very at least from phil's point of view he's an outsider so he doesn't understand uh, any of these traditions <laughs> well we now get to chris who reads the ralph waldo emerson poem that we talked about earlier yeah it's a great poem and then we cut to him entering the brick which is we talked about this earlier in the episode but like i still don't buy these kids just hanging out in the brick by themselves <laughs> like we've never seen that we never even see children in Sicily. Like, yeah. Y'all are telling me that they populate tables now in the brick? So Chris gets in, he starts to take his jacket off, and he notices the kids in this corner booth. He sees Tori, and he's about to walk over, and she, like, kind of discreetly um, motions, like, gestures, like, no, 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 don't come, don't come, don't come, like, go away. And he he uh, also non-verbally is like, oh, what the hell, like, come on. And, like, he, he can't believe it, so I- he, yeah, go ahead. I'm still not sold on this because he is the radio <laughs> DJ for the entire town. <laughs> Everybody knows him. So now you're telling me that he's not cool. The, yeah, the only reason it works is because all the kids were making fun of him for not being a good dancer. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. If I were a kid, I would think Chris is cool. Yeah, exactly. It's like the radio DJ. He's always talking yeah. about cool things and like us learning more and expanding our minds and he wants to come and talk to me specifically that's so cool or maybe i'm just giving too much credit to a 13 year old like i don't know that is kind of something that chris talks about where he then leaves he leaves her alone and he goes to the bar where walt is at and they kind of commiserate over the fact that 13 year olds are just really judgmental is there anything crueler than a 13 year old girl uh to which walt replies uh you know I saw this movie the other night, this Otto Preminger Joan of Arc movie. He's referring to St. Joan. I was looking it up. It's an Otto Preminger movie about Joan of Arc. And he says it was an awful film, but it got him thinking. Would there have ever been a Battle of Orleans? Like, would uh, Joan of Arc ever commanded an army if it wasn't for the onset of estrogen? I guess, like, puberty in, like, a young woman would give her the strength to to fight the battle of Orleans and lead this charge or something. But then Chris also brings up Lucretia Borgia, 
who I didn't really know much about. There is a Wikipedia article. It sounds like uh, there's a lot of speculation that maybe she was involved in like killings and poisonings for like power struggle, like with kings and and things like that. I'm not. Do you know anything about this, or do you have any thoughts on this exchange between Chris and Walt? This took me a while to understand, and the conclusion that I'm walking away with is that they're trying to say that the formative years that you're going through are actually really important in setting you up for life. So he's saying yeah. without mm-hmm. the onset of estrogen, there might never have been a battle of Orleans, which is something further down the road. So in order for Chris to grow as an individual, it's not like you know he needs estrogen, but more that he has to go through the rituals of growing up. Oh yeah, I like that. Yeah, like you were saying, it's like he didn't really get this sort of quote unquote puberty I mean, it's not puberty, but like, you know, his like coming of age through the normal or the uh, quote unquote high society, you know, the cultured society um, upbringing. So yeah, he's got to go through his own little uh, coming of age once again. He's got to do a little bar mitzvah. Yeah, because otherwise, if you don't (laughs) have that reading, I have no idea what that scene is about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, let's see. I think we're kind of coming to a, Oh, no, I forgot to mention, um, before we leave the scene, we can go over it really quick. Tori does get her friends. She's like, all right, let's get out of here. And she says, why don't you guys go ahead? I'll meet up with you. She stops over to Chris and she's like, what are you thinking? Like, you're going to embarrass me in front of all my friends. And, um, yeah, Chris is like, um, whatever. Like, I can't believe this. Uh, the final scene here, I think, uh, one of the final scenes is, Chris arrives to the cotillion dance where he's greeted by the Capras and he finds Tori's table and he walks straight up to her this time. And she's like, what are you doing? There are certain rules. You know, I'm one of the popular girls. Chris says, I get it. Like you, you got your social capital that you're worried about. You're just a fair weathered friend. That's what, that's what they call you. I expected more from someone who read Camus. And uh, he lists an example, I'm guessing from The Stranger. He says, Dr. Ryu, I'm not, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but he's like, Dr. Ryu didn't give up on the people of Oran. He stuck with them through the plague. And Tori retorts, it wasn't by his own choice. He was kind of swept along with everybody else. And Chris is like, okay, you're right. But I mean, at least you get to see some of his humanity. I did want to point that out because... Uh, it was sounding not unlike Joel Fleischman, right? You know, like he was, uh, you know, he didn't give up on the people of Sicily and stuck with them. Mm. Even though it wasn't his choice, we got to see a little bit of his humanity through the process. Oh, I did not see that. That is a really interesting one. The one that I saw was that Tori is now actively engaging with material. She's able to correct Chris on some of the certain character names and plot lines. And that demonstrates that she has a deeper understanding of it. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's showing that, that uh, more than surface level, not just reciting lines, but having her own opinion of uh, what, what this might mean, the interpretation. And... The resolution is kind of quickly wrapped up. Uh, it's kind of a, a, the problem is, seems to be solved in, in a pretty effortless way where basically she's like, uh, you know, Chris, I kind of do like talking to you about this kind of stuff. And it's basically like she's letting her guard down. She's like, I wouldn't mind like chatting with you about this kind of stuff every once in a while, like uh, opening up to the idea of being friends with him, even if he's not one of the cool kids, you know? Right. I think what they're trying to do is have like 
a moment where both of them kind of learn from each other. So like she learns through the typical 13 year old girl that like, it's cool to be vulnerable. It's cool to express yourself. We get that. And then for her, what she's teaching to Chris is to like, yeah, it's some small fashion things, I guess. Like take off the tie pin. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I, I, at I the guess. end of the scene, she's like, oh yeah, Chris lose the tie pin. Yeah. Like you can't be a total dork. Come on. Which I like, it's kind of something for me to wrap my head around because what Chris is demonstrating is his wisdom as an adult. He's cool with himself. He's yeah. fine talking about this stuff. And so he tries to apply that to her and, you know, and teach those lessons to Tori. So in a way, Tori is learning from an adult. Chris is, I guess, I don't know. This is where it kind of loses me because that's not really something that you do whenever you're going through puberty. What's that? You're not usually the one giving advice. Oh, giving advice. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think just the fact that Chris stuck through it, you know, I don't know necessarily that in this scene, I guess you could say he gets uh, some fashion advice. You know, he gets, um, it's more about just like their their friendship is resolved. Mm -hmm. And I think the lesson that Chris learns or the change that he undergoes is more dealing with just like the fact that he decided to and stuck through the, uh, decided to learn how to dance and stuck through it, you know, and and ends up getting the dance with uh, Maggie at the end. That's right. He gets that final dance with Maggie. And before we talk about the very ending, which is the dance with everybody else, uh, we go back to Phil, who finally has the chance to do a proper Tlingit apology to her, where he, he pulls the right levers, he navigates the right lanes, he, he gets it right. And he gives her, uh, I forgot what it's called. I think he calls it a cook or something. The subtitles yes. might have said cook or something. Mm -hmm. He gives that to her. And that's what lets it be water under a bridge. He says, I hope that it's sufficiently modest and doesn't create an inappropriate obligation. And she says, no, it's good. Uh, yeah, Phil and Michelle get together and dance. Everybody's doing a little bit of a waltz. Maggie arrives and gravitates to Chris. He does the little... Um, proper bow, asking her, may I have this dance? Uh, we see Ed dancing with Marilyn. The whole town, the whole town is dancing here. Um, and, you know, Sicily is, uh, again, you know, got the big full moon hanging over Sicily at night. You know, that's, I think the final shot is an exterior shot. But hold up. Sorry. Do we ever see what the gift is? Like, does she open the box? I think the box is the gift. Like, Maybe if we knew what um, what that Tlingit word translated to, it would explain what it is. But it might just be that the Tlingit word is like, it's a little gift for you. But yeah, we don't ever get to see exactly what he gifted her, I guess. Mm, I just assumed it was the box. Oh, was like, wait. Oh, you were saying the box itself is a present. Like it's a nice box. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that might, be, that might be true. Maybe that's what that word means. But yeah, that kind of wraps us up. For the penultimate episode, Let's Dance, I think appropriately titled, though I guess it doesn't really pertain too much to Cal's plotline, but I think we could all agree it all it all sort of coalesces at the end here with this uh, dance. Well, okay, Charles, it's that point in our podcast now where we're going to invite on a guest. And uh, this season six, you know, we've been inviting on fans of the show, fans of Northern Exposure. And uh, I just thought for our penultimate episode, we should bring it back to uh, how we used to do it on the podcast. Before season six, every episode we were introducing the show to a new audience, like a new, every guest was someone who had never seen the show before. And uh, 
for our penultimate episode, we're going to bring it back to our second episode in the series. Our guest on episode two was our good friend Beal. And returning for the penultimate episode, I asked Beal to watch this episode out of context and uh, give his thoughts on maybe the direction of the show, what has changed here. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's only seen, what was that? Uh, brains, know-how, and native intelligence. And I think I've shown him a couple clips of different things because he's been on the Patreon before. So he's seen you know, some Northern Exposure media, but really all he has to go off of is uh, his episode two. So launching in now to Let's Dance, let's... Um, Let's hear what Beal has to say about this episode. Hey, Northern Ever Exposure. Uh, it's Beal here. Uh, I'm recording this from my backyard, so apologies if the audio quality isn't great. But hey, how's it going? Uh, it's been a while. I recorded my thoughts on the second episode of the entire series, and here I am recording my thoughts on the second to last episode. Uh, of this fine television series. Uh, I wanted to start by saying congrats to Lee and Charles um, for making it through the entire series. I know y'all always had it in you to watch six seasons of television and discuss it. And yeah, I'm here to talk about Let's Dance, which viewing it in the context of only having seen the second episode of this series was pretty confusing. But... Uh, you know, I enjoyed parts of it. Um, I kind of took some notes as I was going through. Um, big question for me is I didn't really understand this uh, British violinist criminal character. Uh, mainly, I didn't understand what exactly he had done. Um, I know they kind of go into his social degeneracy and... Um, is he rehabilitated? Has he, like, found the means to do whatever? But, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really understand, like, what crimes he had committed. But uh, based on the way they talked about him and the way he manipulated this this woman cop, he kind of gave me, like, real Hannibal Lecter vibes, like some sort of criminal mastermind, almost like demigod of fate. Uh, but, yeah, he it, it was interesting. Um, definitely kind of a weird plot line with the woman cop and uh, the guy in the NASA hat, who I do remember from the second episode. I think the second episode was based around him and the radio DJ uh, having some sort of misunderstanding. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, I think Lee had given me some context that at this point in the series, um, it was really kind of limping along. They had obviously lost their lead actor, um, kind of like scrambling for other sort of plot lines to fill that void. And that's, that's pretty apparent, you know. Um, it kind of had that energy of a show that maybe was around past its shelf life at this point. Just just a, more as a result of external things like losing your actor and I'm guessing some uh, network interference. But yeah, overall, I think it still had a cool vibe. Um... I like that it still touched on themes of, like, communication and miscommunication and, like, empathy for others and, like, really, you know, the whole plot line with the guy who was really rude and he turns into a werewolf at one point. That was crazy. I kind of thought that that was real and that was just 
the direction the series was taking right at the end, which would have been cool. Um, the food still looking great. I remember that from the last episode I watched. Um, I know the lady gets mad at the guy for dipping his sausage, but I thought it looked really good. Uh, I really want to go to Cotillion. That seems pretty cool. Uh, I liked learning all the rules about a Cotillion. And yeah, really, yeah. I, I would love to know, I'll listen to the episode more about this violin man, criminal mastermind. And yeah, I'll posit a question to you two. Uh, which you may have already discussed, but I'm just curious. Um, say you're an executive producer or like showrunner on Northern Exposure. Uh, when you lose your main actor, um, do you agree with the direction they went with the plot? Is there any other way maybe you would have handled it? Uh, any characters that you would have maybe focused on more or less? Uh, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, that's it. I know this is long, but... Hey, you know, I had a great time watching it. Always do. And congrats again, guys. Y'all, y'all did it. Uh, okay, bye. All right. That was Beal with his thoughts on season six, episode 22. And I thought it was really interesting how he compared Cal to Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah. There's something uh, he texted me after he sent this recording. And he said, uh, one thing he forgot to mention on the record was... Uh, Forgot to mention when you first see the violin guy, he looks like adult Oliver Twist. <laughs> but I do like the Hannibal Lecter um reading on this because yeah, not really knowing who Cal is. I know they have the sort of exposition dump, like the flashbacks within this episode to explain kind of explain who he is, but not really knowing the full story. If I'm in Beale's shoes, I might think of it as if like Cal is doing this master plan where he's secretly like deceiving all of them. Like he's pretending to be this nice guy when actually like, you know, they, they're taking him out of the cuffs. He's getting to play his violin again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I guess the, the, the reason is Barbara's maybe falling in love with him and that, that makes Maurice mad though. I do like, uh, I like Beale's read. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he made a comment that he thought that the food still looks good, including that dipping of the sausage. Yeah. Which, now that it's been a few days since we saw the episode, I still don't think it's that bad. Yeah. Like, I, it's not like a cardinal sin. <laughs> yeah, that's forgivable, I think. Um, yeah, the food, I think that in, in that episode that Beale watched before was like KFC, if I remember correctly. They get a KFC at Uncle Anku's house. And in this episode, we have breakfast, which is, you know, just one of the one of the best meals, you know, is breakfast. Oh, wait, hold up. I guess there's only breakfast, on, lunch, and dinner, but but go ahead. Uh, just going to be. Okay, so you know that um, YouTube channel, uh, Binging with Babish? Yes. Okay, so if they did one, if he did one on Northern Exposure, what food would he make? It would be moose burgers and caribou dog, I think, right? Because that would be yeah. something to try to make. Um, what else could he make? I mean, we've made a few dishes from the show, you know, on our um, on our Patreon. Every Thanksgiving, we've done like a Thanksgiving special and we've uh, looked into the, uh, there's a Northern Exposure cookbook. Uh, so we've taken recipes. Actually, Beal was on, what, I think our first Thanksgiving special and he made um, Mrs. Noah Nuck's uh, black bean enchiladas and maybe something else too. So Beal's seen, mm. he's seen the parts of that episode, I think. I don't think he watched all of it, but he was like, 
you know, I was curious to see what that episode was. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any, uh, good, um, any good food that you would binging with Babish for this show? Ah, uh, no, I think that's a really good pick right there. Yeah. Uh, Caribou dogs. There's a, there, burgers out there. there's like a sign in the brick that says spaghetti feed or something, but I don't think we see a lot. I mean, yeah, I'm sure someone yeah, eats spaghetti, right. but I don't, I don't think we see a lot of that on the show. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the most quintessential one that we're going to see on Northern Exposure. Yeah. Like they do have like lots of food on there, but they're always like a little one off or like super obscure, something that your viewers might not get. So yeah, let's go with that. I do want to jump back to uh, Beal. I don't know if he had a, a question or um, he certainly was curious to know what Cal Ingram had done, the violin player. Like what, what are his crimes? Like why is he? And after he said that, I guess I realized, actually, I should just quickly check, but do they not, did they not show his crimes in the flashback? Let's see. They do. They, they do. show that scene where he's trying to blow up the truck. Maybe it's just kind of hard to process if you're not, if you haven't seen it before, you're just like, you mm-hmm. just see a, a truck exploding and you're like, you're not really sure. Like, was he, was he a victim of a, a car explosion? And it's like, no, no, no. He, uh, to answer your question, Bill, he tried to kill Maurice uh, by, I think, rigging his truck to explode because uh, Maurice had bought this um, prized uh, violin, this antique that Cal fell in love with. And he wanted to kill Maurice to, <laughs> to I guess, rescue this violin. So, yeah, I guess that's that's pretty much it. And then maybe like escaping uh, escaping the mental hospital, that's also a crime, I guess. I think that's, yeah, I think that's all he's guilty of. I, I can't think of any other. Uh... Yeah, I would say those are the two big ones right there for <laughs> for his crimes. Uh, Beal mentioned that he wants to go to Cotillion right there. I'm not too sure if he meant that he wanted to go to Cotillion in general or to this specific Cotillion. I, it sounded like he might just want to go to Cotillion. And like he's, he said he loved the the rules, like learning all the rules. And uh, I don't know, I guess learning how to dance. But we didn't bring this up in the in the episode proper, but I remember, I mean, I, I don't, I never did cotillion, but I remember that was like a class, like home ec, like we, we had a home ec class, we had like a shop class. Yeah. I think cotillion was one of them, if I'm not mistaken. And I never took any of those, but does that sound familiar to you, Charles? Was cotillion a class offered to you? Uh, it wasn't offered to me, but it was offered to my brother and he had taken Cotillion wow. around. What was that like? I want to say it was past middle school. It's got to be past middle school. It's got to be in high school when he took it. And like, I think they taught him like very, you know, the same thing they're teaching over here, like very basic etiquette stuff. Yeah. But the one thing that I remember, and I don't know why uh, it stuck with me, is that they gave him a red CD holder. It was made of like soft felt and it was, you know, like... I'm trying to conjure the image for it. It was like circular and you had a zipper and you just, yeah, you know, okay, unzipped like it. Like a CD case. Just, like a, yeah, like a yeah, CD yeah. case, except it was Organizer. soft. Well. Yeah, and they gave him that and that was like our, f- the one that we used for <laughs> so for CDs. was that like a, like a certificate of achievement? Like, you know, like you completed the class, you get a CD case, CD holder? It felt, the vibes for that felt like, I, I don't know if the listeners are going to get this reference, but the vibes felt like one of those things that you throw off of a float during Mardi Gras. Yeah. It's just kind of like, like you know, a, it's like a knickknack, like kind of throwaway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's kind of how it felt to me. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so it sounds like Charles, our age was like right as or right after Cotillion was being phased out. And I, mean, I say that I'm sure Cotillion is still being taught 
in places. But for us in Southwest Louisiana, I feel like, you know, that I were, I knew people who had taken it. I was not one of them. And then I remember like probably not long after us, I wonder, do they still teach um, cursive in school? I feel like they might, but also oh, they, they may not. They have to. I don't know. They may not. No. How do you sign your checks done? Uh, you can literally do whatever you want. I'm pretty sure for that. <laughs> also, also because everything is digital now, like when you pay with a credit yeah. card, you got to sign right there. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, you can just learn your signature too, I guess. Yeah, they, uh, they probably yeah, still I teach it, so. but I don't know. I feel like, I feel like they don't in some places. I don't know. And finally, Bill is leaving us with a question that says, if we were the executive producer or showrunner on Northern Exposure, do we agree with the direction they went with, with the plot? And would there be any other changes that we would implement? Like the relationship between the characters, the story involving Cicely and all of them involved within it. How would we be handling Rob Morrow's departure yeah. in this this world of Sicily sounded to me kind of specifically like, what would you do with the show? If the main actor like leaves the show, like, like we have to assume it's a world in which the show must continue without Joel Fleischman. And the, you know, my first easy answer would be like, no, try to end it at the, you know, try to end it with him leaving or like in the show before he has to leave. But obviously that's not what happened. And that's not an option given to us. One thing that I thought might be more interesting when I was rewatching this season um, would be to to like mention Joel more often. Um, I know it's impossible to show him because like we're not, you know, Rob Morrow's not going to want to come back and he may even uh, probably dispute the use of his image. Like if they use like pictures of him or if they <laughs> use uh, flashbacks, he may be angry about that. But maybe mentioning his character, because they do it a couple times, but they just talk about him in the past tense. Be curious to know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one idea I have, but I also just think that that probably wouldn't make for a great show. And I think people would not find that interesting just to hear about our our, you know, the missing main character indirectly. It seems like a cop-out. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep thinking on this for a second, but do you have any immediate ideas? to, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if you could say save the show, but just like what direction might you try? Yeah, I would say, okay, first things first, I would try everything in my power to get Joel Fleischman to come back on the final episode. Yeah. That now, could, I, I that know why could they possibly didn't. possibly happen. I don't know. That's an idea that could happen, but yeah. Well, like I, I know why they didn't is because the series was canceled after Balls, um, which was like episode 20, I want to say. Right. Okay. Uh, it was announced it was announced that it would be canceled, yeah, after that episode aired. Right. And by the time they had announced that, the episodes had already been filmed. They already filmed the yeah. finale, yeah. It was done. <laughs> it's like locked. So they would never have known that this was going to be their final episode for them to film in. So that's why they can't get Joel Fleischman because they didn't know it was absolute. So I get why, but in a perfect world, that's how I would have done it. I would have tried to get Joel Fleischman to come back just to bring closure on the whole thing. And it, it just works out that way. Uh, the second thing is that if you have about eight episodes left after your main lead leaves and you're getting this replacement that is supposed to emulate Joel Fleischman in the, in a way, you know, as their role as doctor, uh, Phil Provenza and Michelle, Phil and Michelle Capra, then I would actually try to do 
a mimicry of sorts of what Joel Fleischman was going through in his initial time in Sicily. Like his like first season, second season. Like repeat it? Except or, oh go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but like speed run it. Speed run it and put it <laughs> yeah. on like a twist. Because the townsfolk have already experienced this. So they know how to guide them better. So it can be like a parallel of sorts where you have these eight episodes, you're trying to get them adjusted to Sicily. And instead of the plot line that are having currently with Michelle leaving him and then him trying to with him trying to reconcile with her, you would just have both of them together. And they would try to reconcile the relationship with the town. And, you know, the audience is going to roll their eyes and be like, oh, we've already seen this. But I think that it is something very interesting that you can do when you have, like, pretty much six seasons. Yeah. Like, six, you know, close to six seasons that you can pull from. And try to pull from those experiences. Try to do, like, a victory lap of sorts. Maybe just get some, like, big things and talk about why they won't work again when you try to repeat them. Yeah. But then, you know, just try to move forward. So, like, let's say you do an episode where you kind of mimic like the piano flinging in some way mm. that we're, we're referencing yeah. and then talk about why you just can't do that again. And it's a good idea. You know how you have to create new experiences and you have like this meta opportunity to work within these eight episodes. Cause it's not a, it's not a full season of 22, 23 episodes. Mm-hmm. It's just simply eight. So why not just try to do something like this? Send it off in a very northern exposure way rather than what Beale was saying, where you just try to limp along and just you're just trying to get to the finish line. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I just had another idea um, that came to mind. And it was actually something that I don't know if you had mentioned it, but you definitely were kind of talking about ideas of like, I kind of wish these last few episodes would set up like, a, a good ending for each character. And again, we've recently found out that um, the last episode was already filmed before the show was canceled. So they didn't really, I mean, they may have felt it coming, but they didn't know for sure. So they weren't like, whatever, there wasn't a fire under their ass being like, we need to mm-hmm. like, they they got canceled after the last episode was filmed. Um, but this this idea of like kind of wanting to see the endings for each character like we only have eight episodes left. Like you got to, you can't just like keep, um, keep resetting the status quo. Like we have to be moving towards something, some sort of ending. Mm-hmm. One of those things you said was like, I want to see Ed pursue his like film career. Maybe he like goes to LA for the first time, or maybe he like, maybe he doesn't. And he like pursues his shaman career. But that idea is like, what if everybody like the main cast left Sicily after Joel. Maybe not everybody. Like maybe some people stayed. Uh, maybe like Ruth Ann dies or something. That's kind of sad. But like <laughs> I'm getting very like, I'm getting very, um, taking like a very dark or down note, a sad ending because everyone's leaving. But there might be some sort of uplifting message to show that like things have ended for these characters. It's like a definitive ending. They're They're leaving. They're not coming back. But they'll stay in touch. You know, they plan, maybe they'll come back next year. Um, they'll promise they'll come back next year for like a get together and who knows if they will. Maybe a couple of them stay like, you know, Shelly and Holling and uh, baby Randy, maybe they're the new blood. You know, there's the idea of like these old characters moving on into the great beyond. Go, what is that thing in Lord of the Rings where the elves all go to the, uh, the dying lands or whatever? 
they do that. Yeah. Oh gosh, what is that called? Valinor or something. They do that, but then there is like a new crop of new characters, um, like Phil and Michelle stay in Sicily. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's such a good idea, and it's kind of sad. Okay, okay. But well, I do let's like. Try it. To, go, go ahead. Let Let's try to do like a very short imagery of what we think the character sending should be. So like. I do think it's a very good idea that Maggie leaves. Yeah. Like the way I imagine it is that you have a whole episode centered on Maggie and she's the mayor of the town and she kind of has these thoughts of wanting to leave, but everyone's kind of dogging on her saying like, oh, it's because Joel Fleischman left and that's why you want to leave. Maggie, this is kind of where you belong. But then Maggie kind of gets like this idea, this revelation. She's like, no, I'm not defined by like the men that I'm with. Throughout my entire time in Northern Exposure, it's it might have come across that way. But like, no, like, yes, I am leaving, but it's not because of Joel. And I'm leaving because of, you know, X reason, because of, you know, whatever you want it to be, whatever it's whether to find herself, whether it's the established independence, yeah. whether she feels that she's not capable hands of being the mayor of Sicily. And she finds this courage or this boldness to... Uh, go and explore beyond Sicily because surely this was not the final stopping point for Maggie because this was never like the destination for her. Yeah. From my recollection of Maggie, it, it's she kind of just stumbled into Sicily, but it's not like she left Gross Point and was like, I'm 100% retiring <laughs> in Sicily, Alaska. Like, no, this is like a very cool period of her life, but then she can go <laughs> off to another place. Yeah. Uh, so that's what that's what I have for Maggie. Okay, I've got an idea. This one's kind of cheesy, but uh, Marilyn gets like a very mysterious letter, like a job offer from signed by like Dr. Joel Fleischman to move to New York. Because I was thinking like Marilyn uh, would never leave, but then I was like, what if? I mean, she probably would, you know, that, that could make a whole series on its own. Like, would she even stay in New York, but she wants to go see Joel? So she goes there. Um, I was thinking about Chris. I really don't know. Maybe it's a thing where like Chris... He's like one of the last, like everyone else has like announced that they've, they're, they're, um, what do you call that? Like pick it, uh, not, it's the opposite of putting down roots. They're picking up their roots. Isn't there a term for that? Mm. Everyone else announces that they're picking up their luggage and they're, you know, one foot out the door. And so Chris is like, dang, like, I'm going to miss you guys. Like, it's not going to be the same without you. And then Chris is like, you know, he decides to go, um, uh, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, like uh, his brother Bernard, and maybe he's going to go hang out with Bernard. Maybe he's going to go move in with Bernard for a little bit. You know, he's just going to, or he's going to do like a very Kerouac uh, sort of road trip. You know, because I imagine he probably, I, I can't imagine. I don't know. Do you have any ideas? So I don't know where Chris would go. Oh yeah, I feel like he would just. I like that. Be a vagrant and maybe maybe come back. I okay, so I can buy that, but I can also one thing that I do have to give props to on this later half of the season is that. Chris is kind of discovering more about himself and what it means to be a monogamous relationship, something that we don't see throughout all the seasons of Northern Exposure. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the last episodes, we are introduced to like a new character. We already introduced to Phil and Michelle Capra. What's, you know, one more. Like it doesn't, it's not going to break anything. Yeah. And why don't we have that be like the love interest? And it's something that is instilled into Chris and kind of fulfills the role of what like Maggie is for him right now. But, you know, not Maggie. Um, I do like the idea of Ed moving to LA. What if, okay, again, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer. I don't want to be negative and say that Ruth Ann dies, but I, I, this is about it. I, let's table that. I was just thinking like, I like the idea of Ed moving to LA, not necessarily being like, I'm about to make my feature script. You know, it's about to happen. 
Um, but maybe he's like, I'm moving to LA. I'm going to like try to work. Here's, here's the idea that popped in my head that I think is a little morbid, but Ruth Ann passes away and she does leave some amount of money to Ed. And it's like some sort of message, like, I want you to pursue your dreams or something. So he goes, he uses that money to move to LA and he's like budgeted, like he's got a script and he's budgeted out like a, maybe a short film, maybe a feature, maybe it's just a short film. And he's like, I budgeted it out. I think I can shoot it. But he still has a little bit of anxiety. He's like, I'm like, I'm kind of nervous about it. I'm going to like, I just want to learn the trade. You know, I'm going to go down to LA. I'm going to work as like a PA or a grip or something for a year or two, Mm -hmm. figure out my craft, uh, find friends there who will help me make my movie and we'll shoot it. You know, I've got this nest egg of money that Ruth Ann left me. Mm. She doesn't have to die. The tribe can give him money. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm being like, <laughs> so that's pass away like that. Uh, okay. So let's go with Maurice next. That's going to be hard. Maurice has got to stay yeah. here. He's got to stay. Yeah. He's got to stay. He's, he's gotta, the Ozymandias, he's 100%. right? <laughs> he can't leave. <laughs> yeah. And I think that he helps Phil and Michelle. And he's also got, you know, the wherewithal of helping Joel out too. So he kind of knows how to guide on this front as well. Mm-hmm. And... I don't mind him ending up with Barbara. I think that's nice. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's a happy ending for his character. I would also say that, like, I don't know. It's hard because, like, you want him to grow. You want him to be better than what he was at that very first shoot. Was it the second episode in which he was being very bigoted? Um, to Chris. He throws, yeah, Chris through the window and there's a misunderstanding about Walt Whitman. Yeah. Yeah. We want to see him grow from that. And I'm not saying like he completely 180s and anything like that. Like, yeah, it's all it's always an incremental steady growth. What if he just kind of gets into business with like Ron and Eric? That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, I like that. They yeah. open like a, a a big hotel or something, like a resort. Yeah, they get some for people to come to Sicily. Yeah, right. And that dries up revenue. That makes it become the Alaskan Riviera, and that's kind of Maurice's legacy in that. He's growing as an individual right there, and he's growing the town. And I do think uh, Holling and Shelley should also stay, maybe. Um, you know, it's the brick. Maybe not, but I think I think it makes sense. And they've got a baby, baby Randy. So I think that kind of covers it all, unless you have uh, any other mm. finishing thoughts. What if, what if they got pregnant again? Yeah, there you go. Randy has a, yeah. uh, that's like the, that's the little touchstone at the end of the, uh, at the end of the series. And like Joel... Oh my God. This is the episode. Joel comes back unannounced, like on vacation. This is like years later or maybe a year later or something. He came back cause he wanted for his vacation time off. You know, he goes to Sicily. Remember like when he was working in Sicily and he would always want to go to New York for his like mm-hmm. uh, vacation. Um, so he goes back to Sicily and he finds out that everyone's moving away. That's it. Mm, yeah. And he asks Marilyn to come move to New York with him. Maybe, maybe we don't, maybe she doesn't accept. Maybe we don't know in the episode. She just asks her that in the episode. Even crazier, Randy, I mean, not Randy, um, um, <laughs> Shelly gives birth and Joel has to be the one yeah. to help her. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> She's, yeah, that's great. I mean, this is, yeah, we're, we're yeah. definitely magic Christmas land. Like we're, we're all just like fitting, <laughs> we're making it turn out exactly how we want. But, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this right now, you probably have a lot of thoughts and and what ideas would make a great send-off to this series. So let us know. Um, write into us 
Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Tweet at us, Facebook, let us know, because we're about to watch the final episode next, Charles. That's our next episode, the 23rd episode in season six. It's got a really interesting title. It's called Tranquility Base, and then in parentheses, Our Town. And um, yeah, it's the final episode. <sighs> we already said just now what might be a great way to send off the series, but what do you think is going to happen? in this final episode, I guess bearing in mind that they don't know that it's necessarily the end of a series, but they do know it's the end of a season. So what, what can Yeah. Happen? They like to go do flashbacks. Like traditionally uh, at the, kind, right? Yeah. Or, uh, I mean, like it was season six that began with Joel going back to New York, right? Like that dream sequence. That was a weird, yeah. He had like a hallucination dream sequence. Yeah. Right. So it could be something like that. I gosh, that's such a good title though because I I'm, yeah. I'm in love with the Thornton Wilder play uh, Our Town. Is this like a really good play? And then Tranquility. Do you know what Tranquility Base is? Ah, uh, vaguely. What what is that? I think it's the name of the um where the the lunar like the moon landed. Yeah, that's like the place they landed. Say. They called it Tranquility Base. Oh, cool. okay. Nice. Well, all right. Well, let's let's just hope for the best. You know, last episode. Try to end on a high note. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Charles, um, we're actually going to be meeting up in person later this month. So we've decided that we're going to record that episode when we're in person together. Uh, the final episode we'll record together. So that means that there's not going to be a new episode next week. We're going to try to put something in the feed, in the main feed. So it might be a little clip from Patreon or something like that. Uh, so it won't be empty, but the final um you know, our, our discussion on the final episode will be in two weeks. And then of course, after that, we're going to do a series retrospective, like we always do at the end of each uh, season, but we're going to try to talk about season six overall. And then just our thoughts on the series and the podcast, everything that'll, that'll be, I guess, our, our final episode, but, uh, we still got a, a few weeks ahead of us and Charles, I guess the next time I'm going to see you is in person. So I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Cool. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Beal for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.